0: This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting, different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome, board folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time for Core Brain Journal, and we are really privileged to have as a guest. A fellow that I've known for years, I have a great deal of admiration and respect for. Dr. Ned Hollowell has actually been the thought leader that really opened the door for ADHD nationally. You can't say anything less than that because he is the guy that did it with Driven to Distraction many years ago. And then what happens is he's been very active in the ADHD recovering community for a long period of time. And he has a new book and we're going to be talking about it in just a second. Ned, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: So we're going to have a quick word from the sponsor, and then we're going to talk about this really interesting book about Ned and guess what? His family. He's going to get right down and personal with us. And I'm looking forward to his conversation because I haven't heard about it. And uh, I have not had, he asked me a moment ago if I've read the book. I haven't had a chance to read it. I'm just Too darn busy, unfortunately. I regret that I haven't, but I will read it. So let's tell you about our sponsors. CoreBrain Journal is supported by Great Plains Laboratory. They are deep international biomedical testing leaders for improved targeted mind science details. As both laboratory and, get this, webinar global thought leaders, they provide the most comprehensive set of hard data measurement tools for real biomedical answers beyond the commonplace guesswork that we see every day. They also provide multiple training webinars for both the public and interested medical providers on how to use that important data effectively in their offices globally, my friends. Check out their website for references and testing details, and take note of this offer that they're putting out for our CoreBrain Journal listeners. If you go over there to the site that I'm going to tell you about in just a second, you can register for a Great Plains Laboratory complimentary test drawing each week, each week. And those are organic acid tests. Uh, We frequently talk about IgG, immunoglobulin G. We know that immunity is such a big deal with uh, treatment failure. So go over there and drop your name over at Great Plains Laboratory. That's plural, greatplainslaboratory.com laboratory.com forward slash CBJ for Core Brain Journal. Easy to remember. So let's talk a little bit about Dr. Hollowell. Ned Hollowell is a child and adult psychiatrist, as many of you know. He's a leading authority in the field of ADHD. He's a New York Times best-selling author, a world-renowned speaker, and the host of Distraction, a weekly podcast for managing this crazy busy world that we live in. He is the founder of the Hollowell Centers in Boston, Metro West, New York City, San Francisco, and Seattle. And as I was saying a moment ago, you know, this is really a, a privilege for all of us here. It's a privilege for me personally, but I know it's a privilege for you to listen to a guy that has made such a significant difference in the lives of so many people. I've heard Ned present many times at ADHD conferences, and the theme that you're going to hear from him today that I know he's going to be talking about, because I, I did read some of the blurbs on his book, is his compassion and his sensitivity to his, his warm understanding of people with problems. And to me, after you hear what he's going to tell us about, you can say, how could he possibly arrive at those conclusions? Because he had a very difficult run with it. So let's just start with, first of all, the bigger picture, if we can, Ned. What prompted you to say I'm going to talk about myself on a personal level? I mean, nobody does this. <laughs> I'm going to talk about my family. Yeah. Note.
1: The honest answer is my wife said I should do it. So,
0: <laughs> oh, that's a good
1: yeah yeah. Well, that's helpful. I said uh, I don't think anyone. I don't want to talk about myself. She said, "Well, it's not you; it's your story." And once I could uh, understand that it that it wasn't sort of being a, talking about me it was my story and the difference is and and she had a good point that that what I what I lived through and and what I uh, did it's good for other people to hear about it because um, sort of says you know th- this is something that other people can can do as well and it was also a chance for me to to try to dispel some of the stigma that surrounds mental illness uh, in general I mean I think it's one of the places that reform has yet to hit you know we, we've we really tried to attack racism and we've really t- tried to attack sexism and and uh, the whole mental health is we really haven't attacked and, and it and it remains a, a deep dark dungeon of, of ignorance and stigma and uh, just a whole lot of misinformation and you know there's no field of medicine where the consumption of the science lags further behind than the science. Than in mental health, you know, we we know so much more than than people avail themselves of simply because of stigma, simply because they don't want to be associated with crazy people. So by my writing a book about my crazy family, I thought maybe that would strike a, a bit of a blow. And so I wrote this book because I come from a crazy family.
0: Yeah, you know, that is
1: amazing. Cover, I do come from a crazy family. That's the title of the book, and I thought I thought that that would be a way of. Uh, and it's not a it's not a woeful story at all it's a it's a lot of very funny stories it's not a, a woe is me or anything like that i i'm very proud of my crazy family they were a lot of brilliant eccentric characters and uh, some of them were downright crazy and hospitalized for it others should have been but weren't mm-hmm. i had some tough times but i i don't uh, look back with with anything but affection and um, it is true my my dad was uh, hospitalized for bipolar disorder and as a result my mom divorced him and then she remarried a uh, guy who turned out to be a, an abusive alcoholic he's the closest thing to a bad guy in, in the story but uh, even he had his reasons and and I don't I don't look at him with uh, hatred at all I look at him with understanding and uh, and so then my mom became alcoholic along with him and and so I got sent away to a boarding school when I was 10 years old which is unusual in this country. In England, that's sort of standard, but in this country, it's not. So there I was in being basically raised in an institution, in a boarding school, and um, with a, you know, a psychotic father, an alcoholic mother, abusive stepfather, and two so-called learning disabilities that I didn't know about, ADHD and dyslexia. And, and um, people with those kinds of risk factors end up usually not doing very well one of the unanswered questions the book leaves the reader to wonder is, you know, how is it that I, you know, then went on to Harvard College and medical school and was on the Harvard Medical School faculty. and Now I've written 21 books and have three wonderful children and 30 years of marriage and and, uh, and 68 years old. And I'm happy, you know, it, it, it's a uh, the studies show that people with these risk factors. There's actually a study, the ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. That if you have four of the ten risk factors they identify, the chances of your leading any kind of a adult life are pretty much nil. Well, I have eight of those risk <laughs> factors, so I've way beat the odds. It's uh, and how does that happen? And part of the point of the the memoir is, you know that. You know, let let's wonder together how this happens. And then the second half of the of the book is stories from my early training before I learned about ADD. My early training at a state hospital, Mass Mental Health Center, that was also a Harvard teaching hospital, and the heroism and the dignity and the comedy of those very crazy patients uh, whom I loved and who taught mm-hmm. me so much. And that's the the second half of, of the book. The, what I learned from them, what what they taught me. And it's sort of, so it's a compendium of craziness in the most wonderful sense of that word.
0: Well, you know, it's so interesting because the fact that you would use as a means of introducing the book to go to the vernacular of the word crazy, which is so, as you started to say a moment ago, and I'm sorry I interrupt you, I was hitting it, because a lot of people... Uh when any somebody used the word crazy in here, I'm like, hey, let's change and reframe the language. Let's not let's not use the word, you know, are those people or you know, and the people will actually talk, even while they're talking to me as a psychiatrist, they'll run down that entire community. I said, Well, let's let's reframe that whole thing. So I think it was very brave and courageous for you to say crazy when you're absolutely trying to say, I'm an authority, I'm a psychiatrist. And I want to talk about this. I think using the vernacular is a very connective opportunity for people to really get into it because it has such a paradoxical ring to it.
1: In some ways, I think it's like a, a black person using the N word. You know, I, I I come from crazy, so I can use crazy. You know, <laughs> right. you know my people are crazy, so it's it's okay. You know, I I I use it with with uh, sure a sense of irony, but also a sense of pride. I'm of those people. I am those people, and And I also understand them from the inside out. I understand, I think above all else, what I understand is that you're not crazy through and through. There's only a part of you that's crazy, and there's another part of you that's gifted. And that's what most people don't understand, that that there is so much uh, giftedness to be found in people who are, in, in one part of their mind, deranged, but another part of their mind, they're inventing amazing stuff. Or so, you know, when it comes to the mind, nobody is entirely any one thing. You know, people who suffer from depression, first of all, they're not depressed all the time. And second of all, they, they I mean, our greatest president, Abraham Lincoln, suffered from major depression. You oh, know, yeah, so. Yeah. so we forget when we make these sweeping diagnoses that really are our most talented and gifted people, more often than not, have one or another of the conditions we diagnose in psychiatry.
0: I think we need to just underline that whole couple of sentences right there, Ned, because I'm very much on the same path with you, because that's one of the things that I harp about on a regular basis regarding the current diagnostic strategy system, which is so reductionistic. Yeah. What happens is it winds up being a label. And anytime somebody says, well, what's my diagnosis? I'm going to give you about 20% of your diagnosis. I'm not right. going to give you 100%. So I'm talking percentages all right. the time. Right, and, that's a good one. Uh, and to they come to back go. and they say, no, Parker, it's not 20. That's about 50%. I'm like, yeah. well, but you have these coping strategies. You know, we go back and forth. But I think to have professionals disabuse the person of that right in the sense, I mean, I think it's so profound that you say that and, we, and any of the listeners who are patients themselves, but I think even the professionals, need, we need to form the habit of just doing that right. regularly because then it connects us with each other as human beings and we're not being so, um, well, reductionistic. I hate to say the word again, but we're just being, not, we're not making it so simplistic. It is a complexity of issues that we're dealing with.
1: Uh, yeah, I think, I think most of the conditions we diagnosed are, are markers of talent. When I hear that someone has bipolar disorder or major depression or an anxiety disorder or ADHD or dyslexia, I immediately think, "Boy, I'll bet they're, uh, I'll bet they're talented." I also say they've got something to wrestle with. I'm not uh, one of these romantics who say, "Oh, that's a wonderful thing to have." It's an awful thing to have. Anyone who's gone through a depression knows it's a horrible, horrible condition to go through. Or if you're in a manic phase, your, your life is in danger. you know. So so no, the, the, it's all not in any way something you want to have when you're in the throes of the bad part of it. But these people also, I mean, the, the, it's markers of talent. I mean, you know, I have ADHD and dyslexia and I wouldn't trade them for the world because they also come with the gifts that I've got. You know, and the same thing, by the way, for addiction, which is our most scorned and despised group. I mean, the people who have addiction by and large, are incredibly talented, and we, we just need to help them give up whatever thing they're using, you know, and, and then when they're able to achieve sobriety, they're able to do amazing
0: stuff. So very true. I think it's really a, a very excellent point. You know, listeners, I did read a little more about uh, Ned before we got started, and I thought an interesting thing that all of you would be interested in, you know, on a more specific point, is that Dr. Hollowell thought of becoming a psychiatrist, get this folks, at 11 years old. Now, I'm a little older than you, Ned. I have to confess. So, so, you know, I'm an old man compared to you, nothing personal. Mm. And I know when I was a kid, nobody even knew what a psychiatrist was. I mean, you know, (laughs) uh, I I had the handicap of being from Missouri. So that was even worse. But the bottom line there is, how could anybody even think about knowing what a psychiatrist was? I didn't think about it until much later after I read Freud. I got interested in uh, Freud in my senior year. And
1: uh, of course, you didn't have a psychotic father either.
0: No, I didn't. I mean, yeah, I was, uh, but I, had my, I can tell you, I had my own problems. I'm not going to yeah. go into them right here because yeah. not germane to the point because, but the issue is I think we all have our problems and we start wondering what the heck is going on here. You're a deep guy, I'm a deep guy, we're trying to put some packages together to understand where we're actually going to go in this lifetime. And that's what you're saying. You're saying it in one way or another, but back to it. I want to ask you the question, how in the heck, it's almost like a kind of spiritual thing for you to draw back enough to say, I want to be a psychiatrist at 11 years old. Do you have any idea how that happened?
1: Well, no, in the book, I relate the story. I, I, I had an auditory hallucination a voice came into my head and said, you should be a psychiatrist. I and mean, it, 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 it was the huh. strangest thing in the world. I was standing over a lake, uh, about to go swimming, waiting for my cousins to come out. And uh, this voice out of nowhere said, you should be a psychiatrist. I barely knew what the word psychiatrist meant. And I, I sort of heard it. And uh, I did what I guess most kids would do. I sort of said, oh, and I went swimming. I didn't make anything more of it. I mean. I, I more or less forgot about it, but obviously I didn't entirely forget about it because here I am today,
0: you know. Well, you went to private school at 10 years old. Yeah. Yep. So were you in private school when that happened or were you home from private school? It was
1: during the summer. So it was during
0: summer break. I gotcha. That's wow. Yeah. So which school did you go to, if you don't mind my asking?
1: Well, I, for the fifth to the eighth grade, I went to a school called Pheasanton, which is a junior boarding school outside of Boston. And then I went to a Prep school called Exeter, which is a prep school up in New Hampshire, and then and then Harvard.
0: Fantastic! I didn't know you went to Exeter. Yeah, yeah. yeah my daughter went to Exeter.
1: Did she really? Yeah. Wow! Did she yeah, like
0: it? I went to Culver Military Academy. That's a whole nother Did story. Oh <laughs> yeah. Did she like Exeter? She loved it. Yeah, it was a uh, great experience. You know, a wonderful school. Yeah. You know, one of her buddies from Exeter is now the lead singer in Old Crow Medicine Show. I mean, Exeter turned some really interesting talent out. We. Yeah. It was a lot of fun because we got to know her. What him. year did she graduate? That's a good question. She is uh, just at 40 years old, so I, you, you can do the math on it. But I, I, so she
1: she might have had some of the same teachers I did then. So I was 68, so she was probably in the in the early 80s. Yeah, in
0: yeah, that so range,
1: yeah. I wonder if she had Fred Tremolo. Does that name ring a bell? I
0: don't know. I know that she rode crew. Yeah. She went down to the to the boathouse on a regular basis. They won nationals.
1: Yeah. Oh, they uh, were always... Charlie Swift was the legendary crew coach.
0: Yeah. And she had a very good experience there. Went on to row at University of Virginia. Uh huh. And uh-huh. so, but it was a very good tour for her. We really appreciated. it. She was trying to decide between Exeter and Choke.
1: Oh, I'm glad you chose Exeter. Much better choice. That school changed my life forever. It, it's just a remarkable place in terms of setting your mind on fire. Just really... Uh, yeah.
0: Well, the way they teach. And you know uh, the whole idea she of went down to down and actually have yeah. a conversation and teaching at a round, at a round table exactly
1: yeah, yeah that was brilliant. you learn by the socratic method not by memorizing so That's
0: then back to it let me ask you this question so when you were coming along and you were having these different issues you must have felt i'm asking i don't i'm i'm just projecting a little bit did you then feel better about actually leaving the home and and the way the home was going it was oh little... my God!
1: I was thrilled. I mean, <laughs> yeah, okay. I was, I was. Uh, some kids would be homesick, and I, I was thrilled. I, I was getting out of uh, a horrible place where uh, uh, there was drunk and abuse. And I mean, they were believe me, they were decent, good people. But alcohol can do terrible things, and and uh, you know, it was not good for a little boy to see what I saw. And my mother, it was hard for her, you know, because it was just me, her, and my stepfather. My brothers were long gone, and and so uh, it was hard for her to, to send me away, because I was kind of her lifeline. And and mm-hmm. uh, but she did, to her everlasting credit, and and that saved me. I mean, if, if I had not been sent away, I, I have no doubt, but I would have, uh, I would have gotten into terrible trouble. First of all, I might have killed my stepfather. I mean, I, even mm-hmm. at age ten, I might have killed him. I really yep. might.
0: It was a thought that entered your mind.
1: Oh, many times, and I I did pick up a poker and came at him one night, and uh, picked up a hatchet another night. So it was in the cards that I might well have done that. And back then, it wouldn't have been pretty, put it that way. It would. Have, I would not be sitting here talking to you right now, Charlie, if I <laughs> murdered my stepfather. Yeah, right.
0: I could, <laughs> ouch. Well, you would. At least you wouldn't have to do uh, federal time, and you wouldn't because you were a kid. I mean, being so young. But uh, that's terrible. It's just terrible to even think yeah. about. So then what happened to your parents? and how did how did your mother actually turn well, out? Well she happened? finally divorced him
1: and then she came back and lived out her life on Cape Cod and Chatham, where the rest of my family was, which I consider my hometown. And my dad, when lithium came on the scene, he turns out you know he wasn't the schizophrenic person they thought he was. He spent his life uh, teaching public school up in New Hampshire and was was one of the most beloved teachers that school ever had. And, you know, and,
0: uh, I, I love Chatham too. It's amazing you didn't get into uh, saltwater fly fishing there.
1: Oh, I wish I had. I wish I had. I, wish I, I,
0: I, I fished uh, saltwater off the, uh, you know, when you go out Chatham down the bars down the south of Chatham. Yeah. And it's really great because you can do sight fishing for stripers down there.
1: Did you do surf casting off the beach? Yeah, yeah. Really? I, I've oh.
0: done surf casting, but because I do the fly rod, yeah, it's more fun in the water where you, you can do it in the beach if it's not too windy. But what happens with the fly rod? You can when you're back on the uh, flats like that. Those guys just spook right into the right across the sand, and you can throw throw on their nose, and and it's pretty doggone exciting to tell you. The wow, truth. wow! You have to teach me that. that i would be the... happy to. It'd be a good thing. We could, well, hey, you know what we could do, Ned. We could have a conference in Chatham. That would be yeah, we wonderful. We mix the whole thing up and take a fly fishing. I, mean, I yeah. think we'd have a lot of people show up for the fly fishing. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Salt water fly fishing. That, that, uh, that's, that's quite a, you usually think of fly fishing on a, on a stream or a lake.
0: Yeah. Well, I think what happened was I did that for all my childhood. And then we lived down here in Virginia Beach. Yeah. So, and there's no, no freshwater streams anywhere near here. So you're either going to saltwater. Fr- oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So that's how it happened. So back to you. So then how did it happen that you got from Exeter to Harvard? What was that Exeter experience like that groomed you up to get you squared away for Harvard? How did that, how did all that happen?
1: Well, that was a a natural pipeline. I mean, you know, the people, Exeter sent a lot of kids to Harvard and, and yeah. I, was a good student, you know, I mean, this is the myth about ADD and dyslexia that you can't do well. I I did very well. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I was very focused on writing. I wrote a novel my my 12th grade year. The last thing in my mind was medical school. I I had Mm -hmm. no idea of becoming a doctor. I I didn't hardly take any science courses at all. And so I I got in early decision and and, uh, was an English major. and, And then it sort of hit me. Gee, I don't know that I... Can make a living being a writer
0: yeah.
1: in my practical side. And my, my relatives were, thank God were also practical. I said, do you, you really want to try to make a living writing? That's pretty tough. And uh, you are talented, but you're not independently wealthy. In fact, you have no money behind you. What are you going to do? So I said, well, how about if I you know, hustle and take pre-med courses and see if I can't get into medical school? Cause then I'll always have a job. And they said, well, that's a good idea. So that's what I did.
0: Fantastic. Now, I'm going to ask you another question when you come back. I'm looking at the time and enjoying this conversation so much that the time is slipping away. But what I want to do is really take the next step into the transition of uh, medical school to psychiatry, which I think is a big transition. And I would love it if you would share with us when we get back how that transition occurred because, yeah, there's medicine, but then this whole other thing is going on. I mean, it's a natural place for a writer to go, but I'm looking forward to hearing your response to that question. So folks, we'll be back in just a moment. Today, the world of mind science, psychiatry, and mental health is rapidly changing with innovative comprehensive testing that takes both patients and practitioners into a new world of measured details with useful, understandable, and remarkably actionable plans. The key phrase here is cost-effective. Testing also introduces a key parallel word, for predictability. Psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medications and our brief hospitalizations, arises directly from the complexity of measurable brain body imbalances and impediments that explicitly interfere with medical outcomes and create costly difficulties with inadequately informed supplement and medication trials over time great plains provides a leadership team of biomedical experts with advanced laboratory insights approved nationally both by the fda and CLIA laboratory certifications and is available internationally for both public and medical professions great plains laboratory is the primary laboratory we've used at core Psych for years with excellent customer service for both patients and medical colleagues they are on the spot they get it every time in addition they provide exemplary training modules which are webinars and conferences in an effort to broaden practice perspectives wherever you live do follow up on one of these complimentary test offers today at http greatplainslaboratorycom forward slash cbj yeah that's core brain journal cbj well, welcome back, folks. Here we are talking to Dr. Ned Hollowell, author of Driven to Distraction, with his new book, Because I Came from a Crazy Family. He's telling us in great detail, the unexpected detail, about his childhood and, and the decisions he made and how he managed to pull it together. Uh, and the question I was asking, and look forward to hearing the answer just before we took a break here, was the transition Uh, One would think it on the front hand, hey, he's a writer, it'd be natural to get into psychiatry. But uh, I wonder if there were any other influences. What was the transition point that made you say, hey, this is something I really want to do the rest of my life? Well, you know, medical school encourages
1: people to go into fields other than psychiatry. (laughs) So I I got, and and I had a cousin who was an orthopedic surgeon and who I liked a lot. And orthopedics is very, very appealing because you do a lot of good. And I was heading for orthopedics, and, you know, and I and I thought, you know, my cousin and I could work together. And I do a lot of good and, and it, it just seemed like natural. And then at the very last minute, I, I said, wait a minute, this is not my calling. And I mm-hmm. I really was meant to be a psychiatrist. So mm-hmm. I changed and I was meant to, I grew up with crazy people, I was meant to go treat them, you know. And and so, when I made that decision, I knew it was the right decision, and uh, I really never looked back. I, I'm in the field I was meant to be in. The the big surprise came later, after residency and after all my training. When I did a fellowship in child psychiatry, and I discovered this condition that I'd never heard of mm-hmm. in 1981 called attention deficit disorder, I'd never even heard of that. That was the big surprise. That was the thing that I had no preparation for I had, I had no inkling what it was and and that was that was the discovery that changed my life you know saying, whoa what is this so
0: talk, tell us a little bit about that because that was a big turning point you know when I when I did my first year in adult psychiatry they called, they didn't have they, they weren't talking attention deficit disorder that was 1969 is when I right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, No, it was,
1: uh, you know, it had been around called minimal brain dysfunction, but I, you know, when in 1981, when I learned about ADD and and, um, it was a big aha moment, because I realized I had I also realized that the description, the medical description really only talked about the negatives. And I, and I sort of knew that there was more to it than that. And that's the line I've been pursuing ever since, you know. And and uh, that was the game changer for me when I mm-hmm. when I simultaneously knew, A, that I had it, and B, that it was much more interesting, complex, and vast than the textbooks had it. And so I really set about, along with my buddy John Rady, learning from our patients. that They mm-hmm. taught us the rest of the story. Isn't they taught true? us how, how much more there was to it than the, the DSM
0: had. Well you're so lucky to be hanging out with John Rady. Well, I mean, you two must have been a yeah. pair. Yeah, he, yeah, he was my chief president. Just, he's just like you are. He's so articulate. Yeah. He's so yeah. thoughtful. Yeah. He's got such a warm heart and he's completely unpretentious. I mean, like just, this this yeah. is this is yeah. how it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. you
0: guys have done a heck of a job being together. So did you meet him in school then? No, he was my chief resident
1: when in psychiatry, when I arrived at Mass Mental Health Center. I was a first-year resident, and he was the chief resident, and uh, we've, been, we've been together ever since.
0: Fantastic. Unbelievable. Yeah. So then, when you, what would you say would be the important things as we start thinking about where we're going to go? And the reason to have this conversation, there are multiple reasons. I mean, there's the personal reason for you to be talking about your history in the book and so on and so forth, but obviously there's a much larger reason, or you wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be here, And that is the influence of your thoughts, your book, your life, on the changes that really need to take place in psychiatry as a whole. I mean, we're we're living in a very Paleolithic moment in my mind, in terms of what's going on. I think we've made a lot of progress. People like you have pushed that progress forward, but I think also we're in a crossroads right now in terms of where are we gonna go, what are we gonna do? What would you say would be our biggest challenge looking forward? in terms of how we can overcome some of the stigma that you were talking about a moment ago, some of the ways that we could actually make an impact to transform that dialogue, which is so counterproductive.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's, that's the challenge, is, is dismantling stigma. And, and you know, I, uh, it's one of the reasons I wrote my memoir, is to say, look, I come from a crazy family, and so does probably 50 or 60% of the country. We're a crazy country. We are mm-hmm. filled with crazy genes, which is why we're so great, which is why we're so many entrepreneurs. So, you know, we, we uh, crazy and talent go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to blow up all the stigma, all this, you know, all the all the hidden stuff that just causes problems, you know. so So I think it's really the challenge is not facing psychiatry so much as it is facing the nation. We need to educate people, give them permission, really, to be real. They start talking about their own craziness, which is really? just wonderful and it, mm-hmm. and avail yourself of the help that's out there. You know, the help is we have so much more help in 2018 than we did even, even, uh, you know, when I was in medical school, my goodness. Uh, and, uh, and it's not just medication, you know, it, it's, uh, there are many other, I mean, John Brady wrote a whole book about the power of exercise, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and now, nootropics—you know the herbs—and there's just a whole slew of things. And my big one that I push is human connection. You know, the, the the Surgeon General said that loneliness is the single biggest medical problem in the country. Well, loneliness you cure by finding a friend. You know, so or getting a dog. You know, so there are there are treatments available that for major problems, loneliness is a huge problem. And we need to educate people to uh, not be afraid of saying, I'm lonely. L- lonely is cousin to depression, you know, and and, uh, and anxiety and, and and addiction, you know. So loneliness is the first step toward those kind of problems. So, you know, we, we need to talk about these things in terms that don't scare people and, and help people understand that almost every family has, uh, has people who are crazy and they're probably their most talented members and start celebrating them and being proud of them. I, and I and couldn't that's, that's what, that's what I would love to see us. I do. couldn't,
0: I couldn't agree with you more. I, and you know, it's funny because as we're coming to a close. I'm thinking about how, how important this conversation really is. And I think one of the things we should ask the listeners to do is anybody that has an interest in this uh, conversation at all, in terms of the connection, this is a conversation that needs to be put out. I mean, we need to get Dr. Hollowell's message out there and uh, you know, we're, naturally what happens is Dr. Hollowell's got a little bit of social media activity. I do too, but the real issue is not social media. It's like, you know, people in your life listeners who need to have a little breath of fresh air. They need to have a little bit of an idea of where can I go and what can I do and how can I take that next step? And I think a book like Dr. Hollowell's "This because I came from a crazy family is remarkably reassuring. And I think even a conversation like two guys talking about this, both who happen to be board certified psychiatrists from somewhat different walks of life, but nevertheless on the same path. I mean, conversations like this need to be out there because that's the way it's going to diminish this whole thing of I'm going to have to see a psychiatrist. I mean, you know, let's really start thinking about spreading the word that this is not such a big deal. No. It's a wonderful deal. It's a big deal in a wonderful way. Yeah, said that's very well said. Very, very true. So in closing, how can we get connected with you, Dr. Hallowell? What's the, uh, let's leave a little bit of a... Oh, I'm easy to
1: find. I'm, I have office in uh, just outside of Boston and Sudbury office in Manhattan. My website is just drhollowell.com. but I'm in phone books. And uh, my email address is drhollowelldrhollowell@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you anytime. That's and amazing. my podcast, don't forget my podcast. I was just
0: going to say that. That was the thing I was really talking about. I started yeah. going down that path. Yeah. Yeah. I think people should get on your podcast. Everybody yeah. listening here should be over on that podcast.
1: Yeah, go to iTunes and sign up for Distraction.
0: It's easy enough. Go over, to, go over to iTunes. It's easy. You know, iTunes makes it really, really very easy to pop in there and just go to yeah. podcasts and jump yeah. on Distraction. Yeah. You're probably still a new and noteworthy too. Got, I am, actually, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a busy, busy thank life. Over you, Charlie, today. thank you for what you do. Thank you for having me. Well, I really appreciate talking to you, Ned. Thank you so much for coming on board. Thanks a so minute. I want to talk to you a little bit. We get off. Okay. Okay. Take care. All right. See you. Thanks for listening to CoreBrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. how to start adhd medications they're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start thanks for listening do connect and stay tuned together we can make a difference